2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jay. All right, so uh, once again, I want to welcome everybody here today. Uh, we have been going through a sermon series through 2 Corinthians, and uh, just as a way of reminder, I'll probably say this every week, but one of the reasons we've been going through this letter is because we've been trying to reflect on these themes of weakness and power. And last week was a, le- a week where we started to look at a topic on generosity. And again, I think a lot of people were out last week, so let me just give a quick summary of what we looked at because chapter 8 and 9 are somewhat connected. Uh, but basically, last week we looked at the generosity of these believers and churches in Macedonia. And what they did out of their own accord was they generously gave beyond their, uh, their means for this famine relief fund for churches in Jerusalem. So there was a, a famine that hit Jerusalem pretty hard, and the believers in Jerusalem were struggling. So Paul was going around and basically making a collection for um, their relief. Now, while generosity and giving are obviously related, uh, they're not necessarily the same thing. Uh, You can give away your money, you can give away um, your things, but you can also still lack generosity even as you give. Because plenty of people give for reasons uh, where there is some kind of self-serving means. Uh, It can be like tax benefits, or it can be to look virtuous before other people, or it can even be to exert influence on people or institutions. Uh, Plenty of people give and give donations for example, to schools, right? Because maybe it'll give their kids a better opportunity to get into those schools. But that's not necessarily being generous. So that's not to say that we don't receive anything when we are generous, but uh, whatever we receive should ultimately be a byproduct of our generosity and not the motivation for it. Moreover, I think plenty of people give money only to the point where it's tolerable, uh, where it doesn't make a negative impact on your life, And so, um, therefore, giving is not sacrificial. But one of the things that we also learned through the churches in Macedonia is they gave sacrificially. And we conclude that giving is not only sacrificial, but because it's sacrificial, 
giving can oftentimes seem like it's not easy, right? It's impossible. Because if we think money is what ultimately gives us our sense of security, or money is what gives us our sense of freedom, or money is what gives us our sense of power or comfort, and if those are the things that we value uh, most highly, then of course, being generous is not going to be attractive to us because our sense is when we give away our money, we're giving a piece of those things away as well. But what we also saw is the only way that we can be free to be generous uh, actually has very little to do with our financial circumstances at all, at all, but the only way we can be free to be generous is when we know that Jesus Christ himself who was rich, became poor so that we might become rich, that is the key to our generosity because only then will we feel like we are rich, uh, regardless of whatever our financial situation is. And, you know, sometimes um, uh, you know, sometimes we struggle with generosity because to the degree that we feel like we are poor, uh, it's, it's much harder to give. Uh, but to the degree that we feel like we have been incredibly blessed, and of course in Christ it's spiritual blessings, then we feel rich, and then we can express generosity. So that's essentially a summary of last week, and if you were here last week, you're probably thinking, why couldn't you just say that in like two minutes last week? Um, you know, because that's not how it's done. Anyway, <laughs> today, we're going to look at now kind of a continuation of what Paul is saying about generosity. We are going to look at what we can expect to happen through our generosity. And we often think about our giving as like we're losing something, but Paul doesn't look at giving as something that is lost. But Paul uses this farming metaphor to show us that our giving is something that we plant. If we are planting through our generosity, then the expectation is what? That whatever we plant will grow and will produce a harvest. And if you look at verse 6, Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, sowing and reaping are very common metaphors in the Bible because the world uh, of the Bible is much more agrarian than our world, but even though most of us are not farmers, I think most of us know what a seed looks like. Most of us knows what happens when you plant a seed. Uh, most of us knows the time it takes to cultivate it and for that seed to grow. A few weeks ago, uh, our family, we, we were in Maryland and we hung out with uh, one of Jen's childhood friends and uh, her husband, built this like awesome garden in the backyard, right? Was, I was like so envious. I was like, oh, I would love to have this like huge garden in the backyard. And they grow like all this fresh produce and they, you know, they grow it and then they cultivate it and they eat it. Uh, I don't know how he did it. This guy's like a, a, a genius, but he created a new species of tomato. And when you create a new species of tomato, you're actually allowed to name it. So his wife's last name is Cho and he named the tomato Chomato. And he gave us a packet of seeds of the tomato. <laughs> so anyway, when we went over, the husband, right, he showed me the garden. And I was like so fascinated. I was like, whoa, you grow this and you grow that? It's like the coolest thing in the world. I, I, can, I can understand why people love to grow their own produce. And, you know, you start off with like these tiny seeds that you plant into the soil. And for a very long time, you don't see anything, right? You don't see a harvest. But eventually what you begin to see, you see this like little sprout coming up. And when that little sprout comes up, it's really exciting. And that's, but that's still not the best part because even though you see that little sprout, you still have to wait a little bit more because there's nothing to harvest yet. And that sprout begins to grow and grow and grow. And over time, 
it produces fruit. And then you can take a tomato and put it in your salad, and uh, you harvest this fruit. And it's not just like one fruit that comes out, but it produces a lot of fruit. There's kind of a multiplication that pl takes place when you plant these little seeds. And of course, the exciting part is when you get to harvest those things and uh, enjoy the harvest. And so I can see the appeal of gardening because it's, you're seeing the transformation of something that is tiny and weak and dispensable, and it transforms and turns into something that is good, useful, and bountiful. Paul uses that illustration of a seed and of sowing and of reaping to make a point about generosity. When a farmer sows, you know, if a farmer only sows like one or two or three seeds, uh, that farmer shouldn't expect to see a plentiful harvest. But in order to reap a great harvest, what farmers have to do is they have to plant a lot of seeds because not all the seeds will make it, right? And so similarly, Paul is saying this, if you are lacking in generosity, then you will not see much of a harvest. Conversely, if you are full of generosity, then you will see a great harvest. But what exactly does he mean by harvest here? You see, Paul, he's not talking about uh, principles of investment. He's not talking about growing your wealth. He isn't talking about reaping uh, dividends or interest or anything like that. Because when he is talking about reaping a harvest, he actually isn't talking about material gains at all. He defines it in verse 10. He says, what kind of harvest right, are we, should we expect to see? He says, he who su supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase what? The harvest of righteousness. That's what we should expect to see. The harvest is righteousness, not greater material blessing. God's blessings are primarily spiritual, although sometimes it can be material, but God's blessings are primarily spiritual, and what we should expect to see is righteousness. And even if God does bless us materially, those are only secondary blessings compared to the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And if a harvest of righteousness is the ultimate spiritual fruit that's produced through our generosity, Paul is telling us, Right? We have to sow widely. We have to sow generously. Now, I'm not necessarily going to equate righteousness with joy or happiness, but I do think there is a correlation between them. And, you know, there's a lot of debate, actually, in terms of what does Paul mean by righteousness here when he uses that word, and I'm not really going to provide a precise definition, but I do think when Paul uses this word righteousness, uh, it does mean it is something that is ultimately good for us and something that should increase our sense of joy and delight in him. And of course, other people have made that connection too. Uh, there's a book by two sociologists who teach at Notre Dame, and they wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity. And they're not necessarily arguing from a biblical perspective. They're using, using the tools of social science to make their argument. But they're saying generosity is ultimately good for us. They say that generosity nurtures love in the one who gives and that love is at the heart of human flourishing. And we tend to think love is a sentiment or a feeling that comes to us and out of that feeling we give, but they say it's, it's actually the opposite of that. They say when we cultivate practices of generosity, it cultivates love within us. And when there is love within us, then the measure of all kinds of positive effects like happiness and bodily health even and purpose in living and the avoidance of depression, they say among generous people, those things actually improve. But they're 
also careful to define generosity because they say you can't fake generosity in order to fulfill some self-serving end. Rather, you have to desire generosity itself and desire the good of others through your generosity uh, because if you use it as some kind of self-serving uh, purpose, then it's not really going to be generosity and it's not going to produce these positive effects. And I think the book is interesting because it simply reinforces what Paul says here in that generosity does yield uh, a harvest of righteousness. Generosity is something that is ultimately good for us, the ones who ought to be generous. And you see, Paul is not talking about the individual impact that generosity has on the one Uh, He's not just talking about the individual impact that generosity has on the one who is being generous, but also if you look at verse 11, Paul says, generosity also produces thanksgiving to God. And so in verse 12, Paul says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And there's a few things to notice here. First, notice Paul doesn't say generosity produces thanksgiving for the one who is generous, but gratitude is ultimately directed towards God for the one who is generous. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? You know, someone's generous to you. You, you think to yourself, oh, I'm so thankful for this person for giving me uh, whatever I needed. But Paul says, actually, generosity leads to gratitude towards God. Why? Because at the end of the day, everything that anybody has is a product of grace. It's been given to us by God. Now, you say, what? That's not how it is, uh, and that, because that's not the way we think about our money and our possessions uh, by default. Uh, the way we usually think about it is, I've worked my butt off to uh, get to where I am to make this money, and therefore, this is something I am entitled to because I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into what I make. And that's usually what people think. We think we live in a purely meritocratic, meritocratic society. But if you really think about it, uh, we don't really have what we have simply because of our hard work and merit. Um, Pastor John, he wrote a book on this topic on generosity. You can find it on Amazon, my little book plug. Uh, But he he makes a great point about this, and uh, he's reflecting on going to, you know, his son's, you know, his son went to college. His freshman year was during the pandemic, so they had their welcoming ceremony online. Uh, what a bummer for a college student, right, to not be able to go to, go to college um, your freshman year. But anyway, because of that, he was able to, like, see the welcoming ceremony online. And he says, you know, the message was very predictable. The message was this. Congratulations, you were admitted to the most selective year in school's history. All of your hard work paid off. And that's the message that we oftentimes hear. But then he, he says this, and I'm going to quote him verbatim. But he says if they were honest, this is what they should have said. They should have said, Uh, Students, you are very fortunate to have a spot here. After all, 35,000 people applied. You might be best suited for this university, but we're not certain. How do you even measure people's aptitudes and achievements from a piece of paper? Some were admitted because of legacy. Others were admitted because you could pay the tuition. Still others were admitted because we we need to raise our ranking, help our athletic program, or fit a special need of the university. I know you worked diligently, but so did many others. The admissions process is broken just between us. All that said, we welcome you and wish you the best. You can hear like Pastor John's voice saying that, right? A little sarcastic. Uh, you know, 
what is he, he's making the point that we tend to think we get to where we are on account of our merits alone, on account of our hard work. But the reality is there's a ton of factors that explain why we have what we have outside of our hard work. Uh, by virtue of being born to the parents, to the families that you were born in, in the geographical location, in the particular time that we were all born in, uh, we're recipients of opportunity. We're recipients of education. We're recipients of uh, what we have in this world compared to other people. Moreover, if you have a talent and that talent has proven to be very lucrative, uh, what did you do to earn that talent? It's a talent that's simply been given to you. Of course, you work hard to cultivate and to nurture that talent, but what makes you different from other people who don't have that particular talent? And for those of us who grew up in homes where our parents uh, were immigrants and they had small businesses, um, I don't know if you uh, look at them and you say, uh, we work harder than them. I certainly think the opposite. Uh, they worked much, much harder uh, than I do. And you know, my dad would wake up at four in the morning and go to the market and he had a grocery store, right? Purchase the, the groceries, drive a truck, right? Bring the truck back to the store, unload the truck before opening. And then he would work at the store until closing, until 8 o'clock at night. Then he would come home, and then, you know, he would have to count the money. And there's, like, food, food stamps and, like, you know, stamp the food stamps and uh, go to sleep at, like, maybe 9, 10 o'clock and do it all over again. And when I was uh, growing up as a teenager, you know, I would go and help out at the store on weekends. And I would say, this is, like, the hardest work I've ever done, right? I wouldn't even work the full day. I would go in at noon. Uh, <laughs> and then by like six o'clock, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so tired, right? I would like help unload the trucks and like the produce juice would be like spilling on me. I'm like, oh, this is the worst. Uh, my dad did that for like a whole lifetime. So I certainly don't look at uh, my parents and say, uh, I work harder than them. And yet I have many more opportunities than they do. Uh, I have um, much, right, much more, um, I guess, knowledge and access to knowledge and all of these things than they do. Why? Is it because I worked harder? No. At the end of the day, you can just say, uh, I have what I have, not because uh, of my merit, but simply because of the grace of God. It's been given to me. And of course, that in no way negates the hard work that we all do. But hard work alone doesn't explain what we have, friends. I think that's what Paul means when he talks about how God is the one who supplies the seed to the sower. You see, if our approach to money and possessions come from, a, come from that perspective that it is a result of the grace of God, then at the end of the day, we won't feel entitled to it. And moreover, we will see the good in giving generously because not only does it express love to the one whom we are giving to, but more importantly, it generates a deep sense of gratitude to God for the gifts of God and what God has given to us including through other people's generosity. And, you know, we don't really know the aftermath of what happened in this church in Jerusalem after they received uh, relief in the midst of the crisis of famine. But I imagine they sang songs of worship thanking God because God provided through the generosity of all of these churches. And even though uh, these churches were the means through which these funds came in, they probably would have recognized that at the end of the day, God was the giver of that gift, and they probably gave thanks to God. Now, by the way, I do have some personal experience uh, on being on the receiving end of some incredible, generous people. 
Uh, Jen and I, we came to New York, I guess a little more than 12 years ago, uh, with uh, no jobs, right, no employment for me, me, myself, no real skill, in the middle of a financial crisis. And during that time, like the only reason we made it and we're still here today is because of people's generosity. Um, you know, someone, uh, someone let it, had a studio apartment and let us live there for um, a year, rent-free. Right? When does that ever happen? Uh, a friend of mine in Japan during those early years, he, you know, he's a missionary, um, and he just started randomly sending me checks. And I would say, hey, stop sending me checks, right? <laughs> You're a missionary. I should be sending you checks. But he's like, no, no, I, I, I want to support you. I feel called to support you. So uh, he kept sending it. And then I had, like, several times... Uh, and by the way, uh, it was very helpful, and I don't know how he knew it, because we, we never talked about our finances, but he, he just felt like he wanted to send it to us. And uh, at a certain point, I was like, all right, we're doing fine now. You, you can stop sending it to us. And he's like, okay, are you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah, please stop sending it. But without like, these examples of generosity, we would not be here today. And during those early years, it was a great help, and God really used our generosity to keep us here. And while I am thankful for the generosity of these particular people and feel indebted to them, I look back and I really see it as God, them doing what God, they believe God wanted them to do with their money and to feel the privilege of the opportunity to express generosity, just like these churches in Macedonia. And in the end, at the end of the day, we all had reason to give thanks to God. I had reason certainly to give thanks to God because of the generosity uh, of these incredibly generous people. They had reason also to give thanks to God because from their perspective, they were saying God has given me the means to be generous and to support someone in need. And therefore, that cycle of generosity at the end of the day, whether you're the giver or the recipient, ultimately leads to thanksgiving to God. And that's part of why the cycle of generosity is so powerful. It's not necessarily in uh, what the particular dollar amount accomplishes, and we usually have a very pragmatic and economic perspective on, on those kind of things, but uh, on a side note, the kind of spirit that it cultivates within us, whether we receive or whether we give. Uh, Pastor John, he also wrote something that, you know, I spent a little bit of time reflecting on, and he says, there's a time in every organization where there seems to be very little growth and very little harvest. And eventually the frustration of that uh, brings an end to all of our labors. And just as a farmer might get frustrated when they don't see a plentiful harvest, he says, you know, believers in churches can get frustrated where there seems to be very little harvest or very little spiritual fruit. And, you know, I kind of think maybe we're in that season. I think a lot of other churches um, might feel like they're in that season as well. And just kind of on a macro view, uh, it does seem like Christianity seems to be declining in at least certain areas in the West. And therefore, the temptation will be to stop sowing seeds and to stop working because we aren't seeing a great harvest. But that's really counterintuitive to what Paul is saying here, because what we should really be doing is sowing more seeds and being even more generous. And that's different from the kind of charitable giving, giving that's done for self-serving reasons, but rather, you know, it's a kind of generosity that gives for the sake of others so that God might ultimately be the recipient of our gratitude. And this is where we get to the point and we go, oof, gee, that's hard, right? 
Paul is obviously talking about money and possessions here, but of course we can expand it to all other gifts that we have, all other resources that we've been given, our time and our energy, our hearts, our desires, and I know some of us feel like we're just kind of treading water because we have very little capacity to give of ourselves. Our lives are incredibly filled and incredibly tiring. And I think there's a few things that we could say about that. In the previous chapter, <clears throat> you know, Paul talks about those who are in abundance should supply those who are in need, and there should be some kind of fairness. Uh, and in other words, there are seasons where we are in abundance, and there are seasons where we are in need. And I think if we are in a season in need, I think it's okay to depend upon the generosity of others. So I don't want to give the impression I have no capacity, I'm just barely treading water. Oh, and now the pastor's telling me I need to give more uh, until I burn out, right? Uh, I think Paul kind of gives some nuance to that. There are seasons of need, and there are seasons of abundance. And if you are in a season of abundance, you have an opportunity to be more generous, if you are in a season of lack, it's okay to be the recipients of other people's generosity. That said, <clears throat> even when we are in seasons of need, we can actually still be generous, uh, not through guilt, not through coercion, but if we want to be, right? If that desire is there. Uh, just as the churches of Macedonia were generous, because they were also in a place of need. They were very poor. They themselves were experiencing extreme poverty. And still, they begged for the privilege to give, to express their generosity. And it's not something Paul asked them to do or commanded them to do. They just wanted to do it. And so even if you find yourself in a place of need, how can we cultivate a spirit of generosity within our hearts so that when we have an opportunity to give, um, there might even be a sense of eagerness to do it. How do we get there? And the only answer, friends, it, it has to be through the gospel. And if the gospel hasn't uh, touched our hearts, um, it's impossible to cultivate that kind of generosity. Uh, we looked at an important verse last week where Paul talks about how Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in him. And that verse, I think, continues to drive generosity in this passage as well. Uh, verse 13 in our passage shows us that because Paul says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Now, he's talking to the Corinthians here. And Paul, he's walking like this fine line because, um, and it's, much, it's part of a broader theological framework, but on the one hand, the gospel makes us free and we are justified by faith alone and therefore... No amount of good works, no amount of giving, no amount of generosity can ever make us more or less acceptable to God because our acceptance comes solely on the base of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're justified uh, through faith or by faith, through grace alone. Uh, but on the other hand, a more complete picture, if you look at the book of James, James reminds us, reminds us genuine faith is never devoid of good works. Good works is going to be the fruit of genuine faith. And so while Paul will never make generosity a condition of faith, he does also recognize that somebody who confesses the gospel of Christ is someone who ought to be generous because they are recipients of cosmic generosity. If Jesus had the most in terms of 
right, quote-unquote wealth, if he had the most by virtue of his status as the son, he also consequently has the most to give. And Jesus did not spare anything from us, but he gave it all to us by giving up himself, by dying upon a cross for us. And, you know, it's very, I would say it's impossible to experience this kind of cosmic generosity and have it do nothing in our hearts in terms of our generosity for others. You know, in one sense, being rich and poor, it has uh, less to do with our financial circumstances than we think. And it probably has more to do with a mindset. Uh, there was a report I read many, many years ago, uh, a report on global poverty. And what they did was they interviewed the global poor, uh, people much poorer than the poorest people in the United States, but like the poor of the poorest in uh, third world countries. And when they interviewed uh, some of these people, they incorporated their voices into this report. And I remember reading that report, and one of the most fascinating things to me was when they listed the things that they struggled with, they didn't actually talk about having a little access to food and water, although that was the case. But when they talked about their struggle, uh, their struggle was, they would say, we feel like we're the world's trash. We feel unworthy. We feel powerless. We feel a lot of shame because of where we are. And you don't have to be financially poor to feel those things, um, but it's something that all people can experience and relate to. And I would say that's probably the product of poverty, spiritual poverty. We feel like we're unworthy. We can feel like we're powerless. We can feel a ton of shame because we're spiritually poor in heart. But the opposite can be true as well. Uh, you can have very little and you can still feel very rich. You can still feel a sense of worth. You can still feel empowered. You can still feel like your life is full of honor in spite of your financial circumstance. How? Well, if you know the gospel and if you know the implications of the gospel, then you know that the gospel fills us with infinite spiritual blessings that look like a sense of worth, that look like a sense of power, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that looks like honor, the kind of honor that is given to us as we share the status as sons. In other words, no matter what our particular circumstances are, all believers, poor or rich, and in between, all believers should feel incredibly rich and wealthy because of what we have received in Christ. And it's only when you feel that, when you feel rich and wealthy because of the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ, it's only then our hearts can begin to cultivate a true sense of generosity that gives without any expectation of receiving anything in return. And it's only when you know cosmic generosity, the cosmic generosity that God has given to us and shown to us, where we will begin to see that, just like the churches in Macedonia, it is our greatest privilege to be able to 
show our gratitude to God through our generosity. And so, friends, uh, you know, we're all in different circumstances, and this is not about dollar amount. This is not even, it's not about giving to Good News Church in particular. Uh, at the end of the day, it's about the condition of our hearts. And uh, if we want to see a harvest of righteousness, uh, I guess the, the, the thing we must do is come to Jesus, uh, reflect on his generosity, know what we have been given in Christ, and cultivate a heart of generosity within us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, um, you know, the temptation of greed is so subtle sometimes uh, that we don't, we don't recognize it within ourselves. And the desires of our hearts for uh, things like security and things like comfort are so strong that sometimes want turns into need. And we begin to say, I need these things. And when we turn our wants into needs, then we feel a sense of um, inability to give up uh, certain things through generosity because we believe we need them. But God, I pray that you would help us understand that really at the end of the day, our deepest need has been fulfilled in Christ that we have righteousness, that we have peace, that we have joy, that we have eternal salvation, that we have a hope that cannot be taken away from us, that we have an eternal sense of security that even death cannot take away from us. When we really ponder the things that we need, we can only be convinced that you've given it to us in abundance in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, that you would shape us to be a generous people, uh, to sow and to plant plentifully, uh, to give of ourselves, uh, that we might, over time, uh, plants don't grow immediately, but over time, see a harvest of righteousness, see righteousness cultivated within our hearts, uh, within the hearts of others, and that we would uh, through a spirit of generosity, communicate a spirit of your generosity. Uh, we pray that by your power you would transform us and help us to feel um, that we have been given much from you. Help us to wake up every day feeling incredibly blessed um, because that is the reality, that is a spiritual reality of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.